So, hello, welcome to Cosmic Shambles Southern Hemisphere podcast, uh, in which we have collected together all of the panel from last night's show in Melbourne, who did the Q&A. We didn't have enough time for most of the questions, and uh, so we're going to continue now uh, with Helen Chesky, Katie Mack, Matt Parker, and Lucy Green. Uh, in fact, Lucy, you're a bonus, aren't you? Because you I'm a bonus. I wasn't there on the panel last night, so you've got me for free. Well, I hope this helps, because Matt was all over the place. So <laughs> it was a mess. Uh, you didn't understand about feelings, did you? You had problems with no, feelings no. about black holes. I, I was okay with the black hole bit, but, you know, my emotional response was... Mm, very poor. Was, yeah. uh, which was worrying, Dense. because we thought you were going to counter some of the cliches about mathematicians. Uh, the first question is one about black holes again, but don't worry, not your emotional reaction to them. Uh, if black holes are like the Big Bang in reverse, is there inflation in reverse inside them? Do you want to start on that one, Katie? Yeah, so actually the, the person who asked this found me after the event and asked me in person, so I have thought about this a bit. And the, basically I would have to say no. So the, the idea behind inflation is that it's sort of stretching space out to be as flat as possible. And, and, and black holes are a very, very uh, curved part of space-time, but we don't know if the time before inflation had very curved space-time or not. And so it's, you, you, could, you can hypothesize that perhaps you know, inflation could have taken very curved space and made it very flat, uh, but we, we don't really have any way of saying that, so it's hard to say. Basically, we don't know. We don't know what's going on in implied black holes. It's a, it's a big mystery, really. So, uh, and we don't know what's going on um, before inflation. So you can kind of put them together if you want, but there's... There's sort of not much we can do with that. Well, Lucy, it's interesting with black holes because they are really such a recent phenomenon. We, we now think, like everything in pop culture and in mass culture, you go, oh, we've always known about mm. this. But in fact, even, I mean, the first actual detection of a black hole is when? Oh, I think it's in the 1970s for Cygnus X1, yeah. which is an X-ray emitting source. And they realised when they looked at the data that the emission must be coming from this very, very small and compact, therefore compact object. And, and I really like this discovery because it quite quickly found its way into popular culture as well because it was so phenomenal. So on the bands I like, Rush, they have a, a song about, uh, that includes Cygnus X1. <laughs> Fade in Rush song. <laughs> Fade out. How do you feel when you think about black holes and Rush? I'm once again lacking in emotion. Uh, <laughs> No, but, okay, if I have to have an opinion on black holes, I like them. Because mathematically, right, they're a singularity. And I'm, I'm, I'm aware I'm surrounded by three very qualified physicists. None of them are There's frowning. a singularity okay. at the centre, yes. Yes, right. Yeah. So, so as, a, as a mass construct, they have no size. Hmm. But then, you obviously, you get the event horizon, which is where, uh, it, you know, if you go past that, you're doomed to fall into the singularity, and outside, you're not. But the concept that you can have something with no size, but yet extreme mass and yet you can assign rotation to something with no size that as a, as a, as a mathematician creates a, a the emotion would be confusion and, <laughs> and uncertainty and it gets even worse than that isn't it i remember going to a talk that mentioned hairy black holes and i can't remember anything more than that now okay. yeah. I, I mean so, so okay so this comes this comes down to a discussion in uh, i think the the 1970s or so about whether or not black holes have hair and the idea was that black holes can be described by only three properties mass charge and spin and they're completely indistinguishable if they have the same of those three properties 
But then there's there are all these hypotheses that maybe you can have another property of a black hole. And if in so if you do, it's sort of like saying it has hair, right? So 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 it's it's a it's a metaphorical hair. Oh, okay. uh, but the idea That's is what I just say disappointed. Hair. But there's the, there's a thing called the no hair theorem, which is which is the idea that black holes have no hair, just that they their mass, charge, and spin, and that's everything to them. Can I ask? I don't know if anyone can Singularity, we talk about singularity of black holes, and then you have someone like uh, Ray Kurzweil, who wrote the book The Singularity is Near, which is about singularity in, in consciousness, mm. basically. So what, how do we define the two when we hear, because singular, it seems now, singularity used to be most mentioned when people were talking about black holes, mm. and now it seems to be more often used when talking about consciousness. Well, it's one of those good words where it just sounds like a good scientific thing, and everyone sounds very clever when they talk about singularity. So I think the problem is it's, it gets sort of adopted by lots of people. But my understanding of the, the AI, artificial intelligence version, is that the singularity is the point where we've created artificial intelligence, which basically can then go on creating itself. It doesn't need us around anymore. And the problem is, it's, it's a sort of quite strong conceptual idea in its very broad brushstrokes, but what that looks like in practice is very difficult because you could imagine um, a little consciousness that you've created in a computer that um, is trying to, it's, it's drawing the blueprints for other consciousness, but if you don't give it some metal or plastic or something, you know, you can take its toys away from it. So there's the sort of, uh, the, the sort of um, conceptual idea, and then there's the practicality of it. So I think there's probably two stages to it, uh, that we could make a machine that could make other machines, but if we don't, if we don't let it at the, the materials it needs, maybe we're safe for a little bit longer. The, uh, we're going to move on to pies now. Uh, this is I, feel I don't excitement. know how much you can give away about this because this is pi with an e, but it is also referring to pi without. And uh, so the question is, what kind of pi would each of you be? So can you give a little bit of background? Because obviously many people listening to this have not seen the show. Without giving away too much, what were you doing on stage? I think I, I, I can give a vague description of what I was doing. So... Uh, there is a classic mass pun that pi, the mathematical number, sounds like pi, the baked good. Only in English, almost every other language, it's p, which is a very different pun. But <laughs> in English, we then uh, joke about pies, and so I, I have a sideline hobby in calculating pi in unusual ways. And so I thought for this show, I would calculate pi using pi, the baked goods. And I actually, I do show bits of a video, which I can give away because it's already online, where I was given 400 pies. And so I took them to a car park and we arranged hundreds of them in a massive circle and counted them. And we, we arranged the pies across the diameter and counted them. And we did no measuring other than counting pies. We divided one by the other and we got pi. Um, so we got 3.138, which I round to 3.14 because it sounds more impressive. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas in the show, I do a live pi pi calculation on stage, but I won't give away how or what I'm doing so people can come to the show and uh, not be spoiled. So, what pi would you be? Uh, I'd be a mince, like a, a standard mince pie. Mince meat or mince Christmas? Mince, mince meat. Mince then meat. this is, I mean, a lot of other cultures are all about the dessert pies. I'm, I'm a savory pie kind of guy at heart. Helen, and I realize this is difficult as well because philosophically Thomas Nagel wrote an essay about uh, what it's like to be a bat. He never, I think he could have done it as what it's like to be a pie. As far as I know, pies don't have a level of consciousness so therefore it is a troublesome question. But if we remove that philosophical uh, quandary, what pie? 
uh, well, I'm vegetarian, so Matt can have all the meat pies he wants. I'm all about, I think, you know what, I've never had it, but I reckon someone should invent a pear pie, and that would be my favourite thing. I've never, I'm a big fan of pears, I don't think they come along often enough, and now I think, to think about it, I've had pear crumble, and it's one of my favourite things, mm. but I've never had a pear pie. It must be a pear pie. Well, I'll make a, one. Do you know, French yeah. probably do, the, do one of those kind of, you know, tartar uh, oh, or whatever. It's true. That, that. Um, now, uh, Katie, what would... Uh, I think chocolate. Okay, so that's uh, mm. chocolate pie. Mm. So Mississippi mud pie, would that be acceptable? Some, something along those lines, perhaps, yeah. I mean, just whatever it is, just definitely chocolate. And Lucy, finally from you. Oh, I'm going to go cheese. I'm going to go savoury too. Yeah, oh. good, good cheesy pie. Mm. See, a lot of these pies are not, I would say, traditional pies. I'm going to go with cherry pie because that gives me the possibility of appearing in the background of an episode of Twin Peaks. So uh, that's why I go with that. Um, this one is from Hamish, who is 12 years old. Um, is it true that uh, a vacuum decay bubble would... Isn't it great when you just go... Here's one from Hamish, he's 12. Is it true that a vacuum decay bubble would never reach us because the universe is expanding at the speed of light and therefore the Earth will be moving away from it at the speed of light? This is an excellent question that I like very much. Um, so... If it de- so, it depends on where um, where the vacuum decay bubble happens. So, vacuum decay, if you haven't seen the show, is a uh, a process by which uh, one part of the universe could suddenly transition to a totally different state of existence, and that bubble of of new uh, vacuum state would expand at the speed of light and engulf everything um, everything in it. So. If the, if the bubble starts somewhere that is far enough away from us that the expansion of the universe is pulling it away from us at faster than the speed of light, then it's true that it will never reach us. But it's also true that that part of the universe is in a sense outside of our universe because we cannot observe it. Because anything that's moving away from us faster than the speed of light um, is in some sense beyond our horizon and therefore not really part of our universe. Um, and so, you know, it may previously have been, but if it's not causally connected to us, if the if the information from it can never reach us, I'm I'm doing lots of hand waving right now, by the way, just so. If, I think people that, take that as where we listen to any science podcast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There will be a certain level of gesticulation uh, beyond so, art-based podcasts. So just imagine my sort of flinging my hands into the distance in this case. But as the um, yeah, if anything that's that's far enough away from us that it's moving so quickly that the signals can't reach us. Uh, we can basically write that off as not really being in the universe anymore. So, so it's true that in order to destroy us, a vacuum decay bubble would have to be within our cosmic horizon, or within our uh, within our light cone in some sense. Um, there are a number of different ways of defining a horizon and defining where that edge is. But, but that could yeah. be that's expanding in time. Is it? There could be a bubble hmm. that is far away from us now because the light hasn't had time to reach us so this this you, you were i i talk about bubbles as being nice friendly little things mm. and you were talking about this bubble that was going to come <laughs> along and destroy us all um but uh if it's uh far enough away we wouldn't see it coming so it could be sure. moving to the edge of this thing could be moving towards us at the speed of light and because it's at the speed of light um but if, if it hasn't had time to reach us there's no way we could know it's there yeah you will definitely not see it coming no matter what but it depends so it depends on where it is, whether uh, whether that light will will ever get to us or not. So um, it can be it can be like our horizon is sort of expanding, but but space is expanding faster in some sense. So so our our universe is getting bigger. 
it's en encompassing more space, but things are being pulled out of that space more quickly. So um, there could be something that, um, you know, the light hasn't gotten to us yet, or the bubble edge hasn't gotten to us yet. Um, but it, if, it's, if it's beyond a certain distance, then it will never reach us, even though, um, you know, our horizon is still expanding, and even, and even though, you know, it's still expanding. What, what amazed me when you mentioned this during the show was mm. it expands at the speed of light, the speed mm -hmm. of light is fast, mm -hmm. but the universe is big. Yes. And the universe is more big than the speed of light is fast. So <laughs> yes. one of these could already be happening and yeah. be expanding because there's a lot of stuff a long way away from us, right? Sure. So our, our, our demise could already be racing towards us at the speed of light mm -hmm. in more than one uh, of them. That is a, a sci-fi. Is it in the... Um, uh, it's one of the Ian M. Banks books where a civilization has a, a warp drive thing that allows them, and so they know that a supernova has happened. They use their warp drive to get back to their home planet, mm. and then they wait for the light to get to them, and they have a big concert, and the, the climax <laughs> of the concert is, is the, the supernova, supernova in the sky off. because they know when it's going to come to you them. Can, you can already do that with neutrinos. Really? You can you already do that with neutrinos. Because, okay, when a supernova goes off, and this is awesome, so you know there was this big hype a few years ago about the potential for for supernovae to be or for neutrinos to be traveling faster than light turned out it was a loose cable you know sort of a scandal of some sorts but it, it was kind of fun while it lasted but there is a sense in which super in which neutrinos do travel faster than light in the sense that when a when a supernova goes off when a star explodes um, for particular kinds of supernova the neutrinos are produced in the initial explosion and the neutrinos can can flow can flow right through the the exploding star because the neutrinos interact so little but the light that's produced by the explosion bounces off the stuff of the star the the sort of exploding star and so the light takes a lot longer to get out of the star than the neutrinos do so if you have a neutrino detector and you detect the neutrinos from a supernova, you get those before you get the light. So how you much notice do you get? It depends on how far away the, the, um, the supernova is. But I think you get like, I don't know, minutes to hours, depending mm. on, on how it is. So you can, you can you know, get a, there, 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 are, there is something called the Supernova Early Warning System, S-News, that <laughs> exists. And you can sign up for email alerts. It hasn't ever been set off yet, but they have neutrino detectors that um, that will tell you if, oh, we've got a big spike of neutrinos, you know, look in that direction, you might see a supernova. And, and in a sense, that's what's happening in the sun all the time, right? So the mm. fusion processes at the heart of the sun create neutrinos and light. Yeah. And those neutrinos get out of the sun in two seconds, but the light takes hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. because of what you say, that interacts yeah. with the material around it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. <coughs> How do you feel about that? <laughs> anyway, the uh, question from uh, Ian. Uh, are there bodies circulating around Earth's equator analogous to those around Saturn? Oh, um, so around Saturn you have um, rings of material, water droplets, dust, and you have a huge number of satellites, so moons. And I guess that's what it's referring referring to. Um, now, there's one moon that we know of in orbit around the Earth, lots of artificial moons that we know of around the Earth. So in that sense, yes, there are objects going around. The, well, actually, so now I'm sort of backtracking as I'm talking, he's specifically referring to the equator, which... Uh, for I suppose thinking of something that is, is ring-like, ultimately, that that's yeah. more than one object to make... So well, the geostationary orbit is yeah. at a fixed distance from Earth, and so if, if we started to use space more and use that as an anchor point, then I guess that the, the, you would put things in very specific. Yeah, rings. but the geostationary orbits don't—they don't have to be around the equator. 
Right. So they can they can be co-rotating with the Earth. So the geostationary is that they, or geosynchronous, are that yes, you have this same orbital rotation. But I think there are more geosynchronous than geostationary. So geostationary, yeah. yes, you would be above the same point, and then you'd have to be orbiting above the equator. So we might have a sort of very sparse ring of of artificial satellites around the equator at a certain distance. Would we have had a ring, like if the moon was from a big impact or something else into the Earth, and so it all had the same angular momentum, would that have been a ring initially that coalesced into the moon? Like maybe we're just too late to have seen? That's a good point, because the models do say the moon formed by the collision of a Mars-sized object with the Earth that threw up material that then did coalesce. So you're right, so back billions of years ago when that was happening... I suppose we must have therefore had a ring of material. But that makes the moon sound like a dustpan, doesn't it? Someone, you know, came along and swept up all the bits from the mess and put them all in one place. And conveniently yeah. put it together in one blob. For the purposes of balance, I should mention the uh, book from the early 1970s, Our Spaceship Moon, uh, which views the moon as actually being uh, an extraterrestrial uh, spaceship. And uh, many people might consider that to be no longer a fashionable idea, but I do know that David Icke currently tools with that idea. So um, this is for what? Helen. Uh, how does a flush toilet work? Oh, <laughs> so I'm not sure whether this is a coincidence, but two days ago, three days ago, I did get a very detailed email explaining some bloke in Chicago wrote to me and explained to me how the flush toilet works and how I should use it. He was very insistent that I should use it to demonstrate Bernoulli's principle, um, which was nice of him. Um, but... I am not confident enough on the, mecha- the various mechanisms to describe it, so I'm not going to, because I don't know. Okay. I know the general principles, but I don't know quite all the bits fit together, so I don't know. That's the most scientific answer possible. Hmm. I've I got a vague idea, but I'm not confident yeah. enough. Bernoulli's principle, move on. Yeah, is your toilet still working? Yes, it is. Yeah. I don't need to delve any deeper. Um, now, is this right? Uh, e to the pi i plus one equals zero. Uh, yes. Right, yes. so can you elaborate? <laughs> so this is uh, often described as the most beautiful equation in mathematics because if you get E, which is a phenomenal exponential number, and you raise it to the power of the imaginary number times pi, the circle constant, you get negative 1, and people then combine it with plus 1 and 0. So you get all these seemingly unrelated numbers from maths, but they all fit in this one little um, tidy equation. Uh, unfortunately, if you start peeling it apart, I mean, it is amazing, don't get me wrong, if you start peeling it apart, raising e to the power of a some multiple of an imaginary number is just a way of writing a rotation down. And so you can turn rotations in, you, in on the complex plane if you've done imaginary numbers as e to the power of something. And so what e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0 really means is if you turn 180 degrees, if you rotate half a circle, you're facing the other way, um, which is a bit less majestic. Um, but if you just look at it in terms of the number, it is still amazing that those numbers do that. I but want that's you what it to means. voice a sat-nav now. Please, <laughs> please turn half a circle until you are facing... Please face the other way at your nearest Turn e to the i yeah. pi over 2 yeah. uh, mm-hmm. at the next junction. I would love it if you could get sat-nav in radians. Yeah, you're approaching a roundabout. You need to get off at 2 pi on 3. <laughs> so is that... The ECI part, is that a good example of that moment where when someone like Bertrand Russell, he went into mathematics hoping to find something that was kind of complete and full and, and needed no more, and it had a finite end to it, I suppose. And so that, that's a good example of going, you just when you think, yeah, brilliant, it all, oh, but. Oh, 
Y- yes, yeah. Well, this, I mean, it springs out of... The, so the fact that we use degrees, which is a very good point about the set-nav and these things, is degrees are a human construct. We decided that was a good way to divide things up, whereas pi is a much more fundamental way to measure a circle. So the pi in there just means half a circle. And so it's not surprising that pi shows up. What's more surprising is once we started pulling at that thread of imaginary numbers, that because um, imaginary numbers, you often hear that you can't take the square root of negative 1, but imagine we can and, and people often get too fixated on that, and they have other things like, oh, you can't divide by zero. And people say, well, imagine we can. So, well, you can do that, but nothing interesting happens. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you start pulling on the thread of, what if we could take the square root of a negative number? It just keeps coming and coming and coming, and all these interesting results start dropping out. And that's what I like about maths. You, you think you're done, and someone goes, but what if we just tried this? And then this whole new self-consistent universe just kind of drops out. Um, Lucy, this is something which I can't remember when this last happened, uh, but I do know it has happened. Uh, how would a magnetic pole reversal impact civilization? Yeah, so th- uh, this is something that is not looked at in as much detail as I think it should be. So you have the community looking at the Earth's magnetic field and how that changes over time. And then you have the community who's looking at how the sun impacts the Earth and the sort of medium through which that happens is is magnetic field so the sun's magnetic field connects with the earth's magnetic field and then there are these sort of series of knock-on effects and and we think about what's happening now how is the sun affecting us now but in many years in the future the earth's magnetic field will, will change and it will diminish in strength and there's sort of good evidence at the moment that the processes that are involved in this are already starting to play out so processes involved in the earth's magnetic field changing and that's speculated by the speed at which the, the magnetic pole in the, at the north of the planet is moving. So it's moving much more quickly. And I think what happens over time is that the Earth's magnetic poles move away from the rotational poles, and then when they come back, they reverse their magnetic field um, orientation. So the fact that it's moving quickly now is suggestive that actually the Earth's magnetic field might be heading towards one of these reversals and, and a diminished um, uh, 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 Field, sorry. So during that process, the magnetic field of the Earth diminishes. So the sort of overarching thing is that if the Earth's magnetic field is weaker, we are less protected from what the sun sends our way. But yeah, how that plays out, I've always sort of meant to go back and have a look through the records to see if there are any, I don't know, any evidence of, of mutations, of animal mutations. I don't know if that would be possible when, to find out about that. When was the last that. time this, this happened then, as far as we know? Oh, um, I don't know. So, uh, the order of 100,000 years-ish, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I think. And I think, I was, so I was actually reading this morning about magnetic fields for something else, but and there was some uh, study that said that the... Uh, intensity of the Earth's magnetic field has declined by 10 to 15 percent over the past 150 years. That was the sort of order of magnitude. So it's on its it's on its way down. The first thing it would do is mess up all our navigation systems and animal it would, animal migration and that kind of thing, because animals do use a variety of, and bacteria as well use magnetic fields to to orient themselves. Um, and also all our runways are they've got numbers at the end of them and those numbers refer specifically to magnetic north. Um, and they change some of them every year because as the magnetic north wanders around, uh, you have to change your numbers on your runway, otherwise you'd land in the wrong direction. So that happens, that's happening now, that natural wandering process. But yeah, it, it's, it, it would more be on sort of systems like, you know, navigation and, and our navigation, yeah. I think. But then, then if you start to let cosmic radiation in because you're yeah. weakening the magnetic, that's a hard thing. Yeah, so then what would it do to the cells in... in the, 
the bodies of organisms and, and the mutation rate, because the more high energy radiation come in, this is ionizing radiation. So it, you know, I'm sure it would have an impact, but I don't, I haven't followed biology enough to know whether there are sort of markers in time where you can say that these sort of things happen and then we could relate it back to what the Earth's magnetic field and therefore solar activity meant. How long does it take? Well, how long is the process of... So I thought that was thousands of years or maybe even more. the reversal's quite quick, isn't it, when it goes? Because when you look at mm. the geomagnetic record, mm. the, the, yeah, the quite, intensity is quite... Yeah. I mean, the, 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 it, it goes from positive to negative quite quickly. So thousands of years is the sort of quick timescale? Oh. Matt, I'm not going to ask you how you feel about mutations, but I'm going to ask... Uh, I've heard that there are benefits to tau rather than pi. Oh. oh my goodness. Uh-oh. Can you please explain which is clearly better and why? So, uh, so obviously they've read some of the quite prevalent tau propaganda available online where so pi is the diameter of a circle when you so the, the circumference divided by the diameter tau is the circumference divided by the radius and so you end up with a number twice as big and so tau is twice pi. And a lot of people claim that's a more fundamental way to define the circle constant, and they point to things like equations where, uh, so I will give away, I use an equation in the show which starts 2 pi, and then some other stuff. And they go, well, wouldn't that be nicer if it was just a tau, instead of having to write 2 pi. And I personally am, I mean, it's a matter of public record that I am (laughs) pro-pi. I think tau is ridiculous. Uh, It's a much harder pun. Exactly, for a, for a start, yeah. we're, we're throwing and away... the tau biscuit has been made? Or exactly, we have, uh, yeah, I don't know, we have to do the constant first and then find a baked good uh, to align it with. And so, but I can see arguments both ways. I would say, though, as many equations that get simplified when you uh, go from pi to tau, you have other equations you break and they become less simple. And so, things like if you take any two random whole numbers and you compare if they have a factor in common or not, the probability of that happening is pi squared divided by 6. Right? And I, who wants tau squared divided by 24? I mean, that's ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? So the, some things become nicer and other things become less nice. To be honest, it probably doesn't make a big difference, except we have enough trouble with people thinking math is confusing and hard to understand. And often the one thing that a lot of people grasp was they remember pi and, and to do with circles. And I think it's a bit of a jerk move as mathematicians to go, oh, oh you use pi. Oh, no, no, tau. <laughs> yeah, clearly you've misunderstood that one fragment of mathematics you thought you, you'd grasped. And so I'm, I'm not a maths hipster. I'm going to stick with pi. That's the end of uh, part one of the questions we received in Melbourne. We had a lot of questions, so we're going to do a part two. Uh, if you are coming to see any of the shows in Auckland, Christchurch, uh, or Wellington, uh, or Perth, then uh, get ready and uh, we will continue to not merely answer them live on stage, but those that we don't manage to answer live on stage, we will do another podcast of. But thank you very much so far to uh, Katie, Helen, Matt, and Lucy. <laughs>